This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week, Heather Bradshaw. Now, she's the head of the Bradshaw Lab of Lipid Neuroscience. That's part of the Indiana University Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. She studies, among other things, cannabinoids, neurobiochemistry, and lipidomics, which is a word I've never heard of <laughs> until I started looking into your life. What is lipidomics? So lipidomics or lipidomics, many of us say it that way because of it's under the umbrella of the omics is like genomics ah. and proteomics, right? Genomics is a study of all the genes in an organism. And the proteomics came next where it was the study of all the different proteins that ah. are being made from those genes. Well, interestingly, Lipidomics is also is a big field where we study all the lipids that are being made in an organism, but very differently from genomics, which has which is literally the blueprint of your genes, right? right? Proteomics is the outcome of that, and it's very predictable. You can predict the kinds of proteins that are going to be made from those genes, but some of those proteins are actually enzymes or or building blocks for to make other stuff right. and one of the things that they make are specialized lipids and so we don't actually have a good blueprint for all the lipids that are in our cells and that are used as any in any sort of capacity within our cells what i do in part in my lab is in in uh collaboration with chemists we will predict and say, if these components exist in a lipid, then let's make it. And then I will use mass spec in my lab, mass spectrometry, mm -hmm. and develop a method to be able to measure that lipid. And then I'll go into, say, the brain and, and, and see if that lipid exists. Tell me, what is a lipid? Okay. A lipid is a fat. Okay, um, fat gets a really bad rap, especially in this uh, culture. Right. But um, but we die without fats. Of in course, our diet. yes. And and all of our membranes, everything that surrounds every cell in our body, are made up of different kinds of lipids or fats. Right. And one of the things that we've been finding out in the last decade or so, with as the as the field of lipidomics expands is that it's not just for insulation around our cells and it's not just for storage of energy which is the fat is the primary storage form of energy right but it's actually a way specialized lipids are ways that we that our cells talk to each other neurosignaling yes yeah so we how Neurons talk to neurons, neurons talk to glial cells, support cells, how the immune system of the brain, which are called microglia, they seem to have big messages between each other that are lipids as well. And so that's some of the things that I study. One of the lipids that you study is the cannabinoid. Cannabinoid is a class of okay. lipids. There are quite a few uh, cannabinoids. There's, of course, the most famous, which is Delta-9-THC, which is what people think of with cannabis, which is why those 
why it's called cannabinoids. They're molecules that are made in the cannabis plant. So what we're talking about in civilian terms is pot, yes. marijuana. Yes. Okay. So, and the reason that marijuana has any effect on anyone is that um, there are molecules in that plant that activate a system in the brain. And that system didn't evolve so that maybe one day you would interact with that plant. Mm -hmm. We have what's called an endogenous or in our own bodies system um, that we have called now the cannabinoid system because we, we as a scientific community figured out first that there are these, these compounds in cannabis that activate certain receptors and they're in the brain. And then by doing that, we realized, oh, there must be this endogenous system. And what, what is that? What are those systems? And interestingly, probably not, not too much of a stretch, but the, the compounds in the cannabinoids in cannabis are lipids. Yeah. And the compounds in the brain that activate the same receptors are lipids as well. And so um, that's the connection there. So is there a possibility then that if we partake of these particular lipids, mm -hmm. smoke pot, mm -hmm. we are somehow changing that messaging system in any way? Absolutely. And how? Well, I think that's a big question right now. Part of the issue is that there, again, there, if, if people take medicinal or recreational cannabis, they are not just taking one molecule. Mm -hmm. And um, because we've actually, as a scientific community, had um, synthetic or uh, isolated THC that has been in a pill form right. for many years, it doesn't have nearly the same effect as as people who take cannabis. Cannabis has lots of chemicals. They certainly appear to different um, molecules in the cannabis plant have different effects. Mm -hmm. And so it's not all THC that's having an effect. And it's very likely that medicinally there are it's probably many of the other compounds that are having effects for different diseases. And that's one of the things that the group of scientists that I work with across the world, we, we are studying many of the different compounds in the cannabis plant and seeing what systems are, are they working on endogenously? How are they working in the brain? And, and also, what are those endogenous ligands? What are those endogenous systems so that we can understand them better? Because there are lots of effects of cannabis, um, uh, negative and positive. Mm -hmm. And so, um, because that's the thing too, is that it's not all, oh, you know, it's medicinal cannabis, that's, that's great, and it's going to cure everybody. Well, no. If, like with any drug, if it has an effect for a disease, and if somebody doesn't have a disease and they're taking that drug over and over again, then it could actually cause a problem. You know, so many of us are just trying to figure out what are all the different molecules in the cannabis plant, how do they work in the brain and in the body, and how do we go from there? people uh, do their own independent research, as it were, and I put the word research in quotation marks <laughs> because they go to the University of Google, right. and uh, I've seen this before. Marijuana basically cures cancer. <laughs> well, I, and I don't want to be um, 
glib or whatever, but if it were that simple, we would be done. Yeah. Okay. Ah, yeah. uh, but the, the pharmaceutical corporations are putting the kibosh on all of this. That is well, the part of the narrative. Well, that's part of the narrative. But again, if it were that simple, there's no way I think our human community would say, no way, you know, we're going to let all these other groups just, these people suffer and all these groups make money, mm -hmm. even though we know the answer, because right. we really don't know the answer. A big part of the issue with this concept of medical cannabis is mm -hmm. that there are so many different forms of the plant. A sort of interesting and uh, many of us would say unfortunate side effect of the um, the nature of how it's been grown for decades, which is illegally in mm -hmm. most parts of the world, is that the those strains that had more THC and gave people a quicker high mm -hmm. are were selected for yes over those other strains that were how the plant evolved, which might actually have more of these compounds that might help people. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's still something that as a, as a world community of researchers, we have to, to, to grapple with in terms of um, looking at the epidemiological data of saying this group of individuals say that they get um, a symptom relief in this pathophysiology, this disease um, with cannabis. And we have to say, well, which one? Yeah. <laughs> How much did they take? What is it that they're, you know, what strains are there uh, that, that they are um, using for their therapy so that we can look at that and try to try to back out of it and say, well, what are those molecules? And, and of course, some of the people that would uh, protest almost against this concept, again, this whole bringing it back to the pharmaceuticals is mm -hmm. that it's really difficult as basic scientists. We want to understand how things work. Yeah. And so we want to be able to isolate the different molecules in the plant and test them uh, at different receptors and different pathways and with different disease models and say, well, is this the one that's working? So that then we can isolate that and just give that to people. And they're mm -hmm. like, well, that's a drug. We don't need a drug. We have this plant already. And yeah. so, but as a as a scientist and a neuropharmacologist, I just think, well, <laughs> but you don't, maybe you don't need all the rest of the stuff that's in the drug. You just need those few compounds in the right amount that you know every time that Targeted. you take it right. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what's going to be there to, to help you. Now, that raises an interesting point to me. Uh, you're a researcher. You're a scientist. How much of what you do is driven just by pure curiosity and how much is driven by, I've got to find out this thing to accomplish that task? Hmm. Wow, that's a good question. Um, I honestly don't know that I ever think of it from that latter perspective. Um, so much of so much of what drives me as a scientist is curiosity. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there would be, you know, <laughs> I really do want to help people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I really do want world peace. No, I, I really hope that something that I do on a day-to-day -day basis 
will, if if not have some direct application, will lay the foundation for somebody in the next decade or so to go, wow, okay, so we have all that work done. So now we can, you know, we can really help people. And um, it would be great. But there's still so much to know mm-hmm. that we don't know about how the brain works. Like I said, we're still discovering. My lab discovers new lipids that we never even knew existed, and then we try to figure out what they do. Hmm. And so there's there's so much of that discovery and excitement that it's really, that's a lot of what, what drives me. I think it was Asimov who said uh, uh, the most important uh, words a scientist can utter are, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Now, I'd like to think that legislators are ringing your phone off the hook <laughs> saying tell me more we want we're gonna write some legislation on this what do you think so far they haven't uh (laughs) called i know they do call some of my colleagues yeah so that's great that there there are legislators out there that want to know Mm -hmm. um we now are at 28 states that have some form of medicinal cannabis yeah. uh, legislation. Um, and even Indiana has a, yeah. a funny little form that just came out for a, a molecule that's not THC, this uh, cannabidiol, yeah. um, which has some real promise in uh, epilepsy. So, um, But again, you say some real promise. You're yeah. not making any guarantees. Well, I don't think anybody can make any guarantees even with you know, aspirin, quite frankly. I mean, right. it's, it's a, again, as a scientist, I have to say there's the likelihood that something will work uh, in, a, in a certain context. Um, but uh, in terms of the cannabinoid, uh, cannabidiol, that molecule that um, is, is being looked at in a lot of states and in Indiana as well, that actually is... Um, has already been made into a specific drug. Mm. Uh, it's been isolated from the plant. Um, there's a company called GW Pharmaceuticals from the UK that they have been running trials in the US for a couple of years now for pediatric ep- epilepsy. Mm. And um, and it is promise, actually. The, the, the data look really good that this could be um, a new frontline treatment for those individuals. And so... But it is, it is a frustration as a as a researcher who works in the U.S. that um, that other countries have a little more flexibility and and how how this is accepted, how working with cannabinoid uh, compounds is accepted, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and that the those regulations and things aren't um, they're just as stringent in terms of human safety, mm-hmm. but um, Part of what we do deal with in the, this country is a stigma yep. of, 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 of using compounds that are from the cannabis plant. There's a little less stigma surrounding another substance you look into. Which is? Olive oil. Oh, yeah. Olive oil. Now, what the heck do you do with olive oil? Olive oil is, is awesome. It's yummy. Uh, I love it. <laughs> It's the so only oil I use. I am. Um, this started this journey with that. That kind of somewhat has ended with olive oil. Started about nine years ago when I first started as an assistant professor 
And I started working with a group in Israel um, who had isolated some lipids and were looking at small molecule lipids like I study that are structurally similar to the endogenous cannabinoids, but they don't activate any cannabinoid receptors. But that one of them, when they gave it to animals, um, female rats, actually, if you take away a female rat's ovaries when she's, you know, in the equivalent of 30 or 40, right, mm-hmm. that, of rat years, they get osteoporosis. Hmm. It is a just a very straightforward, there's such a strong connection between the regulation of estrogen and vitamin D and bone health, right? So this is a known model for osteoporosis. And so what this group did is that they, they generated these different lipids and they did so because there's this amazing epidemiological data in the world that shows that places that in the world that consume primarily olive oil mm-hmm. have significantly lower incidences of osteoporosis. It's just very straightforward. And so this group decided, well, what's in olive oil, but mostly oleic acid, the specific kind of fatty acid. Mm -hmm. So let's put oleic acid with all these different things, right? And they, some of them were amino acids, that they make conjugations, meaning they, they took oleic acid and they, they stuck it to an amino acid. And in this case, the one that worked was oleic acid plus the amino acid serine. Okay, so it's oleoserine, or OS, as we just started calling it. So um, what they weren't able to do, which is what one of the things that I do, is to measure it in tissue and to see, is it there, does it change, these sorts of things. And since it seems to be so important for bone, can we measure it in bone? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I got uh, one of my first grants was with them, and it was this Binational Science Foundation, which was Israel and the U.S. And um, so I figured out a way to grind up bones and and see extract this lipid from it, and it's definitely there. And so, quite a few years, we we had this grant together for five years, and we did a bunch of work and 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 showed that if you give these animals this um, this compound in their diet that they will it will it will stop them getting osteoporosis which is pretty amazing but we wanted to figure out how how is it made Uh uh-huh and so the thing about it is is that oleic acid is really abundant in nature there's a lot of it and our cells have a lot of it and so my lab does a lot of cell-based assays and biochemistry and i kept trying to figure out how can i take these osteoclasts, these bone cells, and make them make more oleoserine so I can see and, and, and tag like the oleic acid and see if I can follow that. But there was so much oleic acid in there anyway that it was just really difficult to do this. And for some reason, one day I just decided, what if it's just in what we eat? What if you don't have to make it from the oleic acid? What if we ingest it? So we actually have a small kitchen in my this lab. This conjugated substance. Right. Yes. We have a small kitchen in my lab, and I have olive oil there, mm-hmm. you know. 
So you make I, lunch there too? Yep, or? Yep, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I took the olive oil from our little kitchen from the lab and I did an extraction on it and there's this enormous amount of this molecule. It just resides it, there. It's just there. Huh. So I thought, wow, okay, that's pretty cool. So then we decided to, I went to um, Blooming Foods mm-hmm. and got all kinds of different oils. And I went to Kroger and got all kinds of oils and Marsh. I just, just got lots of different kinds of oils, not just olive oil, because I was right. curious to see okay, is this just a thing that we see in oil or is this olive oil? Well, the long story short is that olive oil had the most right. of all of these oils. And so I was like, that's pretty cool. That That is probably what we're doing. We're probably those individuals. It's not that you just have to ingest more oleic acid. It's that that molecule is already there. But we haven't done that experiment. So that's just a hypothesis. Yeah. Interestingly, around the same time, a couple years ago, a group in Egypt also was, is studying uh, using the same rat model of osteoporosis. And they also, because it's not a secret, they see this relationship between places in the world that consume mostly olive oil and osteoporosis. So instead of giving the animals just this oleoserine, they gave them olive oil. So they started giving them as part of their diet was olive oil. And so they, that's all they did. They, they, some of them got the, um, their ovaries taken out so that they had osteoporosis and they were given the regular diet. And some of them got this diet with olive oil. And the ones that got the olive oil diet didn't get the osteoporosis. Hmm. So to show empirically, to have data to say, at least in this animal model, right, we know epidemiologically that there's this relationship. There's this relationship now with this animal model. If you give them um, olive oil or if you give them just this oleal serine, right? And our piece of the puzzle was to say, hey, guess what? Oleal serine, there's a lot of it in olive oil. So, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that we we're still don't know what it's doing, <laughs> we don't why? know we but don't why? know what yeah. receptor like what pathway is oleoserine working through. We have we have little bits and pieces of that story, but I still don't know exactly the targets that oleoserine hits. As a scientist and researcher, are you then able to say knowing what I know now and knowing what the rest of us know now, uh we'll have this answer in 15 years. <laughs> Can you say that? At least as far as how oleoserine, what target it it interacts with, I would say, yeah. I yeah. think that that's a very realistic number. Why science? Why science? I honestly don't know what else I would have done with my life. I just, I don't know. I love science. I'm, I love to ask questions and, and try to figure things out, and I think that that's using the scientific method and and is the way to do it and so and to and to get to do that as a job then you have to do stuff like you know get advanced degrees and work in universities or or uh research companies and that sort of thing did you know this when you were a little girl that this is where you were headed um i don't think so (laughs) i uh actually 
loved the theater. Oh. Yes. I went to, um, originally I was going to Florida State University for musical theater. I actually changed my major during orientation in the summer to biology. Wow. Yeah. What was the key behind that? Well, I was also, I love science in high school as well. I was in the science club and that sort of thing. So I had these two loves and I realized, um, those people can't see me. I'm almost six feet tall. <laughs> I love the theater. And then I realized in the summer before, and there was sort of, there was, there was a very kind but realistic and some might say really harsh person who suggested that I could do all kinds of wonderful things in the theater, but be on the stage very likely because mm-hmm. um, there it's the stage is only so big and, yeah. and there aren't a lot of six feet tall women on the stage. So that was a sort of honest assessment. Uh, and at the same time, it was this thing that I just thought was fun and I, you know, enjoyed the sort of artistic process. But I had I had some great science science teachers in um, my both junior high and high school. And I could see the creative part of that too. Mm-hmm. And so um, yeah, so I switched then and never looked back. When I asked you about what your thoughts were as a little girl, it made me wonder where were you a little girl? <laughs> I was in a very small town in the foothills of North Carolina. Is that so? Yep. What was the name of it? Kings Mountain. And how many people? Um, I think about 3,000, so, you know. That's even smaller than Bloomington. <laughs> oh, it's much smaller than <laughs> Bloomington. But there are smaller towns, but it is a pretty small town. How did the path come through this town? Through this town. Well, I finished my PhD. I actually stayed in Florida through my PhD. And I started my postdoc, which is the step right after. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of us who want to continue into research and that arm of things um, in Bra- at Brown University mm-hmm. in Providence. Great town, actually loved. We all love my family. We all loved Rhode Island. So I worked with a guy, um, my postdoc mentor, his name was Michael Walker, and he was hired here in 2004 as the first Gill Chair of Molecular Neuroscience for Indiana University. Now, is that the position that's held now by Ken Mackey? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think there were nine of us in Michael's lab, and eight of us moved here. To Bloomington, and so I um, was a postdoc and here a research associate. When I started looking for jobs a few years uh, after that, there was a job here, and I had um, I don't know how old. I guess my son was seven at the time, and so he had been here for a couple of years, and and my husband had already integrated himself as well in ways into the community. And so um, I was offered a job here and we decided to stay. Heather Bradshaw is a scientist and a researcher. She heads up the Bradshaw Lab of Lipid Neuroscience uh, in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. My passion is lipids is one of your uh, (laughs) famous quotes. Oh, Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a passion for that, yeah. And among those uh, lipids are substances that can be found in marijuana or olive oil. 
and she's learning about both of those things and many others. Heather, thanks for being on Big Talk. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. 